Hollywood's had to rethink everything that it does. It's not good enough to be Hollywood-centric. And in fact, the, the writing shouldn't be Hollywood-centric, or certainly not as much as it used to be. Hi, I'm Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot, and this is the Earned Media Podcast. Our guest today is David Bloom. He is a writer at Forbes, TV Rev, and TubeFilter. He does a podcast called Bloom in Tech. He's a longtime journalist uh, for a range of daily newspapers in Memphis, Dallas, and L.A., as well as uh, he used to be with the, the former It Girl magazine, Red Herring. He was with Variety. He was with Deadline Hollywood and Nikki Fink. Uh, he spent a decade as an executive handling comms strategy on the client side for MGM, USC Marshall School of Business, and a range of clients. Uh, just a note to our listeners, this interview will be told in three acts. Act one will be a discussion about David and his background. Act two will be a discussion about video on demand, subscription video on demand, cable and broadcasting uh, from a production and distribution standpoint. And act three uh, will be a focus on TikTok, Clubhouse, and social video, and some of the more controversial aspects of digital media. Uh, so let's get right into it. Act one, who is David Pogue? David Pogue is a fantastic guy. I mean, he's a really good writer about Macintosh, all things Macintosh. I've read him for years. I've never met him, but I've heard good things about him. Now, when I started in public relations a long time ago. Now, just to be clear, were you talking about David Pogue or were you talking about David Bloom? Because technically you're interviewing David Bloom. Did I say David Pogue? You did. It's pretty oh amusing. Oh my God, I knew I was going to mess up and do that. David Pogue wrote the foreword to my new book. And well, so he's on the- You, he's on you the owe a lot more to him than me, I'm just going to say. But, oh you my know. God, I can't believe I said that. All right, ah. let's start this over again. Who is David Bloom? Now, when I started I, in public relations- a long time ago, he was a writer at Variety. I'm sure I must have pitched him stories back in the days. I don't know if he covered him or not because I was in entertainment PR. But those of you who don't know him in this act are going to learn about the man behind the media. So, David, you've been a journalist for decades. You started uh, at, the, at the Daily News, um, maybe before that in, in journalism school in Missouri. Uh, now you're at Forbes. Give us your backstory. Well, I, uh, I actually started well before the Daily News. That's, that was my first gig in the city of Los Angeles. But I was at the Riverside Paper before that, in Dallas and Memphis before that. Uh, you know, I, I like to joke that I started with Gutenberg. He and I were uh, inventing movable type together and uh, putting out the, uh, the Daily Fry, Freiburg Gazette, you know, in uh, 1490 or so. Uh, but uh, since then, I've, you know, I've had to evolve. Uh, a lot over the time over the years and uh, you know I think that's one of the fundamental challenges of people in journalism is how do you stay light on your feet I still have friends working uh, close close friends still working uh, <laughs> my wife's phone unfortunately still works right. it's like a podcast we, we, we get it yeah so we've, we've now arranged the assassination of the person who was calling. Uh, 
you know, you, you, journalists have had to, to stay light on their feet and redefine themselves. And I think, you know, particularly in the, the print business, which is where I started, you know, I, I used to get a lot of ink on my fingers when those fresh printed papers would come out in afternoon papers, which is really a throwback. Uh, you know, that, that hasn't been an issue for a long time. Uh, but we've had to redefine ourselves and uh, onto new platforms and pick up new skills. I had to learn about SEO and learn about uh, things like uh, uh, search, uh, uh, social media and how to optimize my stuff across social media. And, you know, what I consulted some on some of that as, as uh, uh, that business was kind of coming up, uh, trying to understand what these platforms are, thinking about, you know, where we're heading in communications. Uh, journalists as a whole have had to get better at video and now audio as well and do podcasts and uh, do newsletters on Substack. And, um, you know, we've had to be pretty light on our feet in lots of ways, but also really think about what it is that we do as information gatherers and conveyors and who we're talking to and how we do that and uh, how we also get fed. Now, journalists clearly never really worry that much about getting fed because most of, most journalists don't make a lot of money, but they do do it for lots of other reasons, most of them psychic in terms of their rewards. It's still a business. It is still an opportunity there. It's just a very different business than it was uh, back when uh, I was there with old Johannes Gutenberg and the movable type. So We, we have something in common. Uh, both of our, our wives lived in Italy. Yes. Now, we love Christmas in Rome. We're actually thinking about going back this year. Uh, what brought your wife to Italy and how long was she there? Well, she was a journalist, too. We actually were at Variety at the same time, though she was uh, in a much better gig than I was. She was the bureau head in Europe based in Paris. Uh, living, nice. Uh, nice off, gig. Off of the, 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 the uh, uh, Variety's, Variety's uh, uh expense accounts there back oh. when they had accounts that were worth being on and uh, writing about, you know, French film festivals and Cannes and uh, the Venice Film Festival and, and uh, BAFTAs and all that stuff. And I was uh, over here covering the, the movie business, which was fine, a lot of fun. And I was actually also trying to uh, explain to uh, the editor-in-chief back then, Peter Bard, who at one point was the most feared man in Hollywood by at least one, one uh, headlines uh, estimate. Uh, explain to Peter Bart things like, you know, this video game business, it might be a big deal. And you know, this whole uh, tech thing is really gonna matter. So, and he was still a guy, and this is literally true. Peter had, uh, did not get email. He did not have a computer on his desk. He had a Selectric IBM typewriter, Selectric 2, I think, to be precise. And people would email to an account. His assistant, uh, Bashira, would print out on a piece of paper that email and hand it to him. He would look at it. He would type up a response on his typewriter, hand it to her, and she would fax it, fax it back to them. And this is the guy I would explain why we needed to cover a technology or game or whatever thing to so uh, a brilliant man who did a lot of things to transform variety in uh, the early 90s and take it into a new world and, and make it a hugely profitable business back then uh, but uh, technology was not his forte so you know it's uh, funny in in the uh, forward to my book that david pogue wrote he mentions giving a talk in 2013 to a, a company and you know getting with the ceo afterwards and, and learning that he too had his emails printed out to him and brought to him. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's not that different today 
for a lot of, I think, uh, uh, legacy corps. Before we move on uh, from, from Italy and your wife, because uh, maybe I know her name, who is your wife? Andrea Voshe. And so she was actually in, in Venice for part of a year, but several years in Paris and also spent uh, uh, extended periods of time before that there. Uh, when she was 20, she married a French race car driver, as you do when you're 20, uh, Formula One driver, and uh, was with him for 10 years. So she spent a lot of time there and, and took his name and, and pronounced it the French way and pronounces Andrea the French name, the French way. Uh, but uh, she, she's uh, got a little bit of French. We've been, we've been watching the Stanley Tucci uh, CNN uh, series on uh, about food in Italy, uh, and uh, now that she has her shot, she's been uh, uh, really militating for us to go and basically retrace his steps across the twenty-four states of Italy. So, uh, well, if you're there, if you're there for Christmas, we should grab a meal together. I, I, anything, you know, a, a roadside stand by all accounts from her is uh, better food than you're going to get in most uh, one star Michelin restaurants in Los Angeles. And that's no knock on one star Michelin restaurants in Los Angeles. It's just what it is. So it uh, sounds great. Uh, well, we don't know when we're going to be there, but I, uh, it's very clear she wants us to be there. So. All right, David, you started it as, as a newspaper journalist. Yeah. How has the fact that a global audience has access to your content? change the way you approach the business of journalism and the art of storytelling? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I don't know that it impacts it on a day-to-day -day basis so much, but you do need to think about it. And I, I think it's really important that uh, to understand that it's, it's really the way we approach the questions we ask of the companies we're covering, because uh, Netflix is a globe girdling business. Um, that's one of the areas where we're going to talk. You know, Netflix is in 192 countries. They have over 200 million subscribers. They produce stuff in I don't know how many languages, uh, and and they translate it to many more, I think. Um, and they're buying it from all over the place. You know, it's you know crime crime series out of Denmark, and it's uh, uh, reality shows out of India, and it's. Um, melodramas out of South Korea, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all over the world and everybody else is trying to catch up. And so we have to think about, okay, it's great that you've got 7 million subscribers in the United States. This market is pretty saturated. How are you going to do in the other 7 billion people in the world? And how are you going to take care of them? They don't all want to watch, you know, the five blockbusters you may put out in a two-year period. They may want to watch some other stuff, including things that matter to them. And how do you write about how this company is going to grow across the globe. And so it can have that kind of global reach. Hollywood's had to rethink everything that it does. It's not good enough to be Hollywood centric. And in fact, the, the writing shouldn't be Hollywood centric or certainly not as much as it used to be. Um, you are filing stories all the time. I mean, you're constantly getting news out. Um, how has the audience for long form content, either written or video changed? Uh, I didn't realize there was still an audience for that, but uh, I'll, uh, I mean, I say that, of course, and I can't, I can't help adding background and things like that to the stories that I write. I, I think that um, you got to pick your spots, but there's definitely an audience there, I mean, for really long form stuff. I mean, the New Yorker is thriving, to my mind. I mean, it's, by all accounts, making money. It has, you know, 10,000 word pieces that go deep, 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 uh, but maybe even they have gotten a lot more uh 
popular minded in some of the topics that they choose to take on in, in, in ways that they do it. I mean, I think uh, they, they've had to be, for instance, much more uh, aware that there is a world outside of New York, weirdly enough, and, uh, and that doesn't just count DC. And so they actually write about things in uh, Los Angeles and Seattle and San Francisco and places in between like Chicago and Houston and uh, my old stomping grounds, University of Missouri's backyard uh, in the state of Missouri. Uh, they'll actually write about things like that. So even the New York-centric, New York uh, navel gazers have have looked up and noticed, oh yeah, there's this big wide world out there, there's a big wide audience out there, we have to evolve and do stuff. I don't always, I mean, I, I, I hear a lot more from podcast promoters in Pakistan than I do readers in Pakistan, I will say that, uh, you know, through my LinkedIn page. Um, but there's clearly people out there reading because I see it from my... Uh, my, my audience stats, some of the publications that I write for, I, I look at what Forbes provides and I'll see stuff from certainly all the English speaking countries, but, you know, even beyond that across Europe and uh, sometimes South America, uh, Africa, even. So there's people out there reading and you have to figure out how do you uh, not get too deep inside baseball? How do you make it a little more accessible to somebody who's interested, but maybe doesn't worry about distribution ladders, things like that. So when you, when you think about your podcast, Bloom and Tech, and by the way, you get some amazing guests on that show. Um, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, like you're stuck with me, but <laughs> sometimes people call up and say, Hey, you want to talk to the CEO? And it's like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah amazing. Bet. It's like uh, th- some of those interviews are just total diamonds in the rough. Um, when you think about like kind of what you have to cover, for Forbes and Tube Filter and, and TV Rev versus what you really like to cover? Like what type of stories really interest you personally most? Hmm. Well, I, you know, I really like seeing how uh, new technologies are coming along to change the way we interact with each other. I really like, uh, I'm, I'm interested in the business of some of this stuff and, and not just the hype about it. You know, I, uh, you mentioned, Red Herring and Red Herring was if any if any magazine was on the crest of the hype wave, it was Red Herring back in its day, you know, in 1990. Only to be upstaged by the industry standard. Well, yes and no. The industry standard was great for it was what it weekly, was. Weekly, and then yeah. Red Herring was monthly. We were monthly. And so it was a different sensibility. And uh and, and the other thing that was different was, you know, Tony Perkins, who was the publisher of Red Herring, had gone to school with uh, one of the guys, uh, Kleiner Perkins, who gone to high school with like one of the one of the guys from the old blue chip VC fund, venture capital firms. And I can't remember if it was Kleiner Perkins or who it was. It was one of those guys. And uh, he. He spoke the language of the VC world, the investment, the private money that was jumping into this space in a big way for the first time in the late 90s. He knew those guys. He hung out with them at the, the Sand Hill Road restaurants in, in uh, Palo Alto. And, and he knew those folks. And, and it was really the publication for those people and the people who wanted to reach those people. So it was a very specific sensibility. In some ways, the industry standard was a little bit broader than that. And, and I was in Hollywood writing about entertainment as it was affected by technology. And to me, that's really interesting is how entertainment, which everybody watches, and technology, which is transforming it, that's been to me the most interesting conversation over the last 25 or 30 years. 
And uh, I would always have to, I always considered myself sort of a uh, translator between Silicon Valley and Hollywood. You know, the things that Silicon Valley was doing and thinking about didn't make sense to the people in Hollywood, but the things that Hollywood did and talked about didn't really make sense to folks in Silicon Valley. And I had to sort of go between those two worlds. And I understood both worlds. I could speak both languages pretty well. I'm so-so on French and can't speak Italian worth a damn, but I, uh, I can speak those two languages and they're very specific languages and, and kind of figure out what makes sense and then, then convey that to like normal human beings or relatively normal human beings. So beyond the obvious things like, you know, celebrities and big media and, you know, huge audience milestone announcements, you know, the type of things that you do cover quite a bit. What sort of smaller untold stories interest you? Uh, That roadside stand in Tuscany, but uh, with the really good pasta. But other than that, uh, you know, the smaller stories, I, I, I'm fascinated uh, by some of the, for instance, some of the social media creators who do things, uh, who, who built audiences out of nothing. You know, they didn't have NBC selling their stuff. They didn't, they didn't go to USC's film school. And then, you know, a bunch of buddies plugged them in to do some commercials. And then they got a, they got a small horror film at Universal. And now they're a big, they're a big deal. They built an audience that they have a direct connection with. And they've now built not just a media business, but merchandise and live gatherings and events. And now they're on multiple different platforms and they're really interesting how they can do that. And they're often doing this when they're like 16 years old, 18 years old, 20 years old. I mean, they're like tennis players, <laughs> you know, they're doing this stuff at a time when they barely passed puberty. And uh, I think that's pretty remarkable. Now we see that with the esports space. Same thing. These esports guys are incredible at what they do. I like. I still play games. I like video games, uh, much to my wife's chagrin. Uh, but it's gigantic business. It's it's four times the size of Hollywood and actually the global movie business. It's four times the size of that business, and only got more so during the pandemic. Uh, but but the esports space there. These kids are really good at what they do. They get discovered at 15. They get on a professional team, but then they're done at 22 because their 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 ability they get repetitive stress injuries from playing games seven or ten or twelve hours a day, or their 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 reflexes aren't quite as good as the guy who's 17. You know, they're now 21. So they have to figure out what's the next step. So then they become online influencers and they become lots of other things that I think are really fascinating. So that evolution is fascinating to watch. Uh, these whole new media types that didn't exist and these whole new media stars that didn't exist in 2000. I mean, not that long ago. I mean, this is really just a, a last decade kind of um, reality. So I, I find it fascinating. And that's a, a phenomenal news beat that you can read about uh, on Two Filter. We are talking with longtime journalist David Bloom. He's a senior writer at Forbes, TV Reb, and Two Filter. And uh, we're going to discuss the future of the video content business when we return. Stay with us. Act two, the future of the video content business. In this act, we're going to talk about subscription video on demand, over-the-top services, cable and broadcasting, with Forbes senior writer David Bloom, who tracks the industry closely. I'm grateful to have him with us here today to talk about the future of the video content business. David, 
I need you to dumb it down for me before we get started here and just explain for a second, what are the different ways people access video content these days? Well, it's, um, it's multiplying by the moment. I sat in or listened in on a, a, a presentation Comcast did on Monday. And they're a pretty good illustration of all the ways you can get to folks. But, but importantly, there was a little number at one point, one of their ad guys got up and said, you know, we reach customers in more than 300 different ways. And he, by that, he means we've got Peacock, which is our streaming service. And that Peacock is on Samsung smart TVs and it's on Vizio smart TVs and it's on Apple TV plus and it's on Fire TV and it's on this and this and this. And we also own Zumo, Zumo which is a free streaming service that's not as subscription it's not as high end as uh, some of the stuff that's on peacock and we have cable so we're across all these cable systems including the 20 some odd million remaining cable uh, subscribers that comcast has through its original business and they've got broadcasts so through the nbc tv stations that they own through nbc universal and they've got social media across all kinds of things. And they've got a bunch of little streaming services tied to NBC News and NBC Sports. Um, they've got other kinds of ventures uh, that are kind of hard to keep track of, to be frank about it. Um, but all of those together across all these different platforms that you use, like Android and your phone uh, or iPhones or uh, you know, Mac and Windows apps on browsers, they're across all this of 300 different ways. So they're a pretty good example of all the ways that consumers now can access some kind of video-related news, entertainment, sports, et cetera. And, and that's, that's the world we're in. And not everybody's as everywhere as uh, Comcast slash NBC Universal is, but I guarantee everybody wants to be if they're not there. Is so. anyone consuming terrestrial broadcast or is that really just an excuse to get onto a cable network? Uh, yes, there is a set of people that aren't reached by cable, uh, particularly in rural areas, uh, who used satellite or now they're using, uh, over the air. I just saw an ad for, a, I think it was an 80 or hundred mile over the air digital antenna to be able to pull in digital TV, uh, broadcasts because it doesn't make sense financially to run wires out to somebody's farm, but they want to watch TV too. And how we get that stuff to them, there's some technology coming along satellite-based low Earth orbit satellites that Elon Musk has one, and there's called Starlink, and there's a couple of others coming along. And Google's been playing with this space, and Facebook's been playing in that space, and places like Africa, which has, it's expensive to, to run actual hard lines to lots of people. So maybe there's other ways to get to those folks. We have the same issue, something like 15% of Americans don't have... Uh, direct access. I think that's the number. And a whole nother chunk of people uh, who are not in rural areas, but maybe just don't have the money for an $80 or $100 cable bill, um, you know, need over the air access. So broadcast still matters. And, but the thing is the way broadcast is making a lot of its money or has made a lot of its money is the, 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 the federal laws that require cable systems to carry, they call must carry rules that require those cable systems to also carry the local TV stations, all of them on their service and offer those for little or no money. And they have to pay 
the, the broadcasters for the privilege of carrying their signal. And that's been a big chunk of money for the broadcasters. But as the, as more people cut the cord, that money is going down at the same time broadcasters are having trouble in other areas. So have, have you cut the cord? Uh, my spouse is a uh, ardent, certainly uh, during the previous administration, an ardent viewer of the 24-hour news channels, not owned by Rupert Murdoch. And uh, the possibilities for cutting the cord were uh, diminished in my household. Uh, that being said, also, uh, I like sports. And until very recently, and this is a gigantic shift that is underway. Until very recently, live sports were basically available either on broadcast or on cable through regional sports networks. And uh, the, the, the NFL rights deals that were signed last week, that were announced formally last week, are the first major step to take the biggest single programming chunk. The most popular shows on TV are NFL games. 28 of the top 100 games, uh, 20 of the top 100 broadcasts last year were NFL games. Super Bowl is the biggest one, 100 million, 102 million people watched uh, in 2020, the Super Bowl. Uh, but all kinds of other NFL games from the playoffs on down are also big ratings bonanzas. And that is now finally going to be available. Uh, streamed for the first time, 15 games a year for 10 years on Amazon. They're, spend, they're spending $10 billion for that privilege. And uh, that was just uh, announced, oh, right? The deal between NFL and Amazon. Seven, six days ago. Yeah. Uh, and that was a huge deal. But also all the guys that already had deals for their broadcast stuff uh, and uh, are also getting streaming rights. And they're almost certainly going to use those. Only Viacom CBS had them really on CBS All Access, which is now Paramount+. Plus, And we'll continue to have their games on Paramount+. Plus. But I think everybody else sooner or later is going to do the same thing. Of all so, the different ways that people consume video content, which ones are the most popular and what direction is distribution headed? Well, you know, number one is still the traditional cable bundle. It's just plunging. I mean, everybody talks about cord cutting and it's a huge deal. And during the, the pandemic, it, it accelerated. But it's still 70 million households uh, in America, something like that. 65 million, 70 million households. I haven't seen any numbers in the last few months. Uh, and it, But are getting it through something like a traditional cable bundle. And it could be a smaller bundle than it used to be. Maybe you don't get the, the full boat one because you're already getting HBO in a different way, or you don't care about the last hundred channels on the cable offering. Um, so people are getting, they're mixing it up more and people like com companies like Comcast are making it easier. So like on Comcast box, you'll see whatever cable bundle you get, but then Netflix sits right there. Like it's just another, cable network. Uh, and they've been doing that for a couple of years and some of the others are doing the same thing. Um, cable providers are now talking about being streaming providers. They're broadband providers. They're getting away from thinking of themselves as a provider of TV and more a provider of high-speed data networks that include TV and other entertainment news and stuff, but also security services and you know, internet connections at a high speed for gaming and on and on and on. So they're, they're recasting who they are. And, uh, but talk to us, talk to us about media bundles, because for so long, we've been used to paying cable companies for these bundle of channels, many of which we don't watch. 
What's the future of media bundles? Well, I think, uh, I think we'll have a more targeted approach, but you know, my, my uh, colleague, Alan Wolk likes to talk about the great rebundling. And I think he's right about that. It's, it's, uh, we, we've been busy breaking up the bundle and at some point we're going to start putting it back together. It's going to have more value, but it's going to be a more targeted bundle that we have control over that we can get in and out of more easily. It used to be such a pain to cancel. You know, you wanted to cancel your cable stuff. Even if you said, I don't care about TV anymore. It would take you a day and a half, it felt like, to say to Comcast or Spectrum, I'm done. Cut the cord. And, oh, I've got to get the box. I've got to drop it off. They're not picking the box up that I've been paying for. And, uh, you know, and they'll keep hitting you up with new deals to get you to come back and things like that. Uh, now, you don't have to take everything. You know, the tiers are, yes, I want Disney Plus because I have a five-year-old. I don't anymore, but uh, she's considerably older than that. Uh, but, you know, maybe I get Disney Plus and Disney Plus has its own little bundle. It's Disney Plus and Hulu, which they took control of, but don't own completely yet, but will soon. And it's ESPN Plus, which is kind of weak. But there's three of those for less than you would pay for Netflix. Uh, Netflix still has way more programming and is probably still going to be the go-to choice for everybody to start things, but you'll start layering on top of Netflix. So Netflix is going to be like the equivalent of what basic cable used to be with a wide array of programming in various genres and a more global approach than we've ever had. But, you know, you pay 13 or 14 bucks for that and you get a huge amount of content every, every month. And then you, maybe you like HBO max. And you, so you put that on top and it's a really fine service, I think, or you get Peacock because you're on Comcast and you get the whole, you know, the whole boat of, of what uh, the, the, the top tier of Peacock, which is 50,000 shows and stuff like that. Uh, you, you'll get to pick and choose more. I think the problem is not going to be that so much is I'm wondering what the fifth or sixth or seventh service does. The niche guys will be fine because they have lower costs. But if you're trying to be uh, an omnibus service and you don't have something else making a whole lot of money for you, like Apple does, you know, it sells a lot of sell $65 billion a quarter worth of iPhones. Uh, they can afford to drop a few billion on programming and it's like, Oh, well, you know, we could do that or we could pay for Tim Cook's uh, limousine drive rides. You know I mean? It's kind of, kind of like that for Apple. Right. But Viacom CBS doesn't have another source of money. So how does Paramount plus fit in? How do they continue to sustain and spend that money to keep up with all the programming? And some of the challenges. I, I do want to talk about Paramount Plus, but first, what is the deal with video search? I mean, why is it so bad? Why is there no one place I can go to search across all the different services for a show? It seems like a huge opportunity, and it's so frustrating to be able to frick. I mean, we sit down and watch a show, it takes us 15 minutes just to find some show we read about in the paper that we want to watch. Well, because these are different little gardens. So Apple's the Apple TV is trying to fix that with their interface. Certainly Google, which knows a little bit about search, I've been told, uh, is trying to fix that with their Google TV interface on top of their Android TV technology, you know, to be, you know, the equivalent of Lord of the Rings, right? It's like Lord of the, the video search. And, uh, but you're still having to depend on, a lot of moving parts that those companies, big and powerful as they are, don't control. So 
totally understand everybody's trying to fix that problem nobody's fixed it don't know how they're gonna fix it um so it's a competitive thing everyone wants to have their data no one wants to share it there's no like remember we used to have um in the old days when we did pr there was tribune tv data and if you just got the show information to them they then made that show information to all the msos cable providers And yeah. then, you know, people could get the name of the show. Why is there nothing nothing like that, that you can tap into with over-the-top uh, services? Well, I just think that, that, you know, first of all, Tribune didn't magically pop out of Philo T. Farnsworth's forehead in 1937 when he invented one precursor to TV, nor did it pop out of David Sarnoff's head. Uh, it took 30 or 40 years for Tribune to get around to doing that. And Tribune, by the way, owned a bunch of newspapers and a bunch of other information services. And it was seen as a, you know, a, a Switzerland, you know, kind of a, a deeply interested, but not, not a competitive partner uh, for that kind of thing. Nobody's in that place now. Everybody has skin in the game. So everybody's looked at it a little suspiciously. But the other thing is, Back then, you'd put your show up because you had that show in that window locked down for however long it was. Just trying to, you know, for instance, keep track of where the Harry Potter movies are. You know, when, when let's see, how did this work? When HBO Max, which owns the Harry Potter stuff, HBO, Warner Media does, when they debuted last, last year, uh, they had all the Harry Potter movies for a couple of months. And then it went back to, but they basically borrowed them after renting them out to Universal and Peacock. They went back to Peacock for six months. And now the first three of those movies are leaving Peacock and presumably going back to HBO Max. Now it's kind of hard to keep up with all that because for years, Hollywood's you know, studios were selling rights off to this and this for this amount of time over here and here and around the world. You know, this the Spanish guys, we get this for, for a year. And I mean, I used to work at MGM and, you know, James Bond is on dozens, if not hundreds of outlets for however much time uh, in all kinds of ways. And, and, and that was the way they make money. And now it's, it's kind of hard to keep track. And I think just, uh, just keeping current is, is a gigantic challenge and they have incentives not to share well. So, right, right. Um, okay, so let's move over to Paramount Plus because I mean they have literally been blitzing paid media uh, to try to uh, get the word out about their new streaming service. Uh, it's a, a subscription video on demand service. So I will ask you, since it's your headline, can Paramount Plus help Viacom CBS catch up in the streaming race? Uh, I think long-term they face challenges. They say they're going to spend up to $5 billion on programming. They say they spent, they already spent $15 billion on uh, programming on CBS and their various cable networks and on Paramount. And they're going to, they're going to slowly pivot toward and, and fill out what, they're, what they do across um, streaming. And that may be true, but $5 billion is sort of table stakes, right? So Netflix spent 17 billion. Um, Disney will probably spend 15 billion. Again, Apple spends whatever it wants. It has $196 billion in the bank as of their last earnings call, uh, $196 billion in cash in the bank. So that is nearly five times as much as the market capitalization for all of, Mar- of Viacom CBS. Um, that's just cash. 
<laughs> so so Viacom, a company the market values around $40 billion, is going against companies that are worth trillions of dollars that um, can spend a little bit of money over here if you're Amazon or a little bit of money if you're Apple uh, to do a whole lot of stuff. And to me, uh, you know, Sherry's fires, uh, Redstone has done a remarkable job knitting those companies back together. Bob Backish has been, I think, a really smart uh, CEO uh, working with a hand that isn't great. Um, and they talk a really good game, but I, I just find it hard to believe five years from now that they're going to be uh, fully competitive. So we'll see. But I, I think it's going to be a challenge for them. I just It's just not enough zeros in their bank account. David, you also wrote that despite Netflix's still dominant position, uh, the world's biggest streamer saw its dominant position erode notably during the pandemic. Uh, what is the state of the subscription video on demand market these days? And, uh, and sort of where are we right now? Give us sort of a snapshot. Well, I would say that um, we have six or seven or eight, depending on how you want to count it, major players um, trying to get uh, not just a foothold here, uh, but to expand and create content that will sell around the world and to buy content from around the world increasingly. I mean, like Disney once, Disney had a fantastic first 16 months. They got over 100 million subs now, half of half of Netflix in a very short period of time. Now, I question whether they'll be able to get that next 100 million as easily because, you know, the shows that work for Disney are very specific stuff. Right. And so if you don't like superheroes and you don't have kids, you don't need what Disney Plus is selling. Well, maybe Hulu can fix that, but that Hulu is not really an international brand. So they've started a new brand. Uh, so you got a bunch of players. You've got some tech giants with very deep pockets who have other things they're trying to do. Uh, you've got AT&T owns Warner Media. You've got a, a broadband provider in Comcast, which owns NBC Universal. And then you got a pure play like Viacom. And, uh, you know, what happens to Lionsgate, which just uh, uh, raised a billion dollars. And, and, you know, Viacom CBS just raised three billion in debt so they can pay for more program. They're trying to figure out taking advantage of low interest rates, taking advantage of uh, kind of crazy high uh, uh, market valuations right now uh, with some, you know, they're issuing equity that's convertible or debt convertible to equities, basically what it is. It's a financial thing I won't bore people with, but, but basically they're taking advantage of the market situation to raise some money, to be able to finance more stuff. But that, that, that can be very difficult and a very expensive game. And I just don't think they have enough uh, wallet to be able to keep up. So at the same time, the reason why Netflix's market domination eased is because they had good good competition at a time when everybody's watching more stuff and people were trying things out whether people stay on hbo max whether they stay on uh peacock is a different question so churn's going to be an issue for all these guys and churn is i come on there i buy the subscription for a month or i buy it for three months but then i see the mandalorian and i'm done and i i cancel my subscription because it just takes a click of a button and i go and i watch uh, i don't know industry on or euphoria on hbo max and and then i watch that and then i click after two months and i'm done with that and that churn about getting the uh, subscribers keeping the subscribers is the biggest challenge these guys face so uh, a whole other world from make a movie send it out to a bunch of theaters and then send it to home entertainment 
different business. So the latest on TikTok, Clubhouse, and social video with Forbes senior writer David Bloom. When we come back, stay with us. Act three. TikTok, Clubhouse, and social video are changing video formats, revenue models, and distribution platforms. In this act, we're going to talk to Forbes senior writer, David Bloom, about where the business of video content consumed primarily on mobile devices appears to be headed. And and let's start, David, with TikTok, which seems like it came out of nowhere. How, How did it get so big so fast? Well, they have a really good product. Uh... They also were two different companies. There was one in China called Douyin. And I'm sure I'm butchering that because my Mandarin is, is uh, even worse than my Italian. But Douyin is uh, gigantic, now has 600, 700 million users uh, that bought uh, a separate service that was very similar called Musical.ly that... Um, also had a Chinese founder, but was based over here and had 100 million users in a fairly short time, but had been around for a while, I'll say since like 2015, 2016, doing the same thing, short video, mostly karaoke videos in the US. That's why it was called Musical.ly. It was kind of like you'll sing along to, to tracks from songs, you know, and stuff. But it was 100 million people doing something that looked a lot like what doing was about. And the thing is that TikTok did a really good job with a really uh, very different kind of, of interface and experience that um, completely hypnotizes a bit strong, but it is a very engaging, very simple process to say, and they pick up a lot of signals from what you like. You know, they don't need a lot of data about you to give you a really good experience because each video you look at gives them a lot of signals about the things you like. And that's, very different from like Instagram where you're just sort of scrolling through endlessly tap, tap, scroll, tap, tap, scroll. It's a very different experience. And, and uh, never mind Facebook, which is much more involved in a much older, it's weird to say it, but it's a much older generation social media experience that no surprise is more popular now with much older audiences who much prefer that slower type out text, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, kind of experience. But uh, TikTok does what it does at a really good level, not without controversy. Um, you know, the Trump administration tried to force the sale, did it in a shockingly haphazard way, who saw that coming, uh, to try and push it into the arms of a couple of companies whose CEOs had been big donors to his campaign, uh, but they managed to play for time. The TikTok people did play for time uh, in the courts, and that's dead. Um, less uh, that's not the case in India, which banned TikTok and something like a hundred other Chinese-owned apps in the wake of a, uh, a lethal uh, border confrontation in Kashmir between Indian and Chinese troops, a, a very volatile area that also has Pakistan fighting over it as well. Uh, but I think something like 20 Indian troops were killed in this confrontation back in June. And after that, uh, they banned TikTok, cost them 100 million users in India. Um, but and there's been a bunch of copycats that have blown up in India and trailers come in there and some others because um, it's a giant market also. Uh, but it, it feels like it's come out of nowhere, but it's been building for a few years and they do what they do at a really good level. And they benefited to some extent by the pandemic, because all of a sudden it wasn't just 
tweens and teens using TikTok. It was, you know, their aunt Marcy doing it with them. It was uh, their mom and dad doing it with them, or even their grandmother. All of a sudden, the adults looking for something to do with the kids who were totally into this, and they had time on their hands, and they're looking at, oh, this is kind of cool. This is pretty good, and it's really well done. Uh, Not my thing, but really well done. Do you have any insight into how they take the unstructured data associated with consuming their content being consumed at the user level and juice this algorithm to give you more of what you like. Yeah, there's a really smart uh, breakdown on that by I think Matthew Ball, who's a a writer about uh, media business that I really uh, respect. He's a consultant, uh, used to work, I want to say at uh, at Viacom back in the day. Uh, But the, 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 de- the, the deal is that that, that is semi-unstructured data, but it's not. So the fact that you watch this video and you skip past that one is a signal. The fact that you like it is another signal. The fact that uh, you may copy that one because you can, you can create a new video based on sort of the previous one. You can kind of riff off of it and do it. So that's another signal about interest and engagement, not just for you, but for people like you who also like this other video that's different, but might also, you know, it's like you can start layering in lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of signals. And all of a sudden, if you've got really sophisticated data uh, crunching capabilities and some of these Chinese companies, that's all they do because it's a much more mobile uh, focused experience. Uh, they've gotten really good at that. And uh, in the mobile space, dealing with data to generate um, uh, actionable uh, algorithms and do really powerful stuff. They've gotten really, really good at that and it's really paid off. And it's also why Clubhouse uses a Chinese contractor to manage some of what it does. So, you know, I was listening to um, Kara Swisher's podcast and she mentioned that she looks at um, TikTok on a burner phone. You know, it's not it's not a phone that's connected. It's an old phone that just she uses over Wi-Fi because she's kind of concerned about privacy concerns. Any thoughts about what might be going on there, about why she might be concerned? Well, the, 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 the big concern and one that was, I think, poorly articulated, but articulated by the Trump administration uh, last year was that under Chinese law, companies in China basically have to share their data with the Chinese government, which uses it for things that many of us would find deeply problematic. Uh, never mind the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, uh, which is uh, horrific, but just their everyday treatment of their people and the way they manage those things is deeply problematic for a lot of folks. They don't really want to be contributing to that. And, um, you know, the TikTok owners say, you know, we, we don't share information with them. Um, possibly the information that they have is not nearly as problematic as, say, the stuff that's scooped up by the bucket loads every day by Facebook about you. There's much more information about you and about who you're connected to and about the things you like, uh, the things you write about, the things you care about on Facebook every day and Facebook's track record is much more problematic than TikTok's, but TikTok has a vulnerability that I certainly understand Kara's position. Um, you know, if you're going to travel 
to China, you should use a burner phone um, because you're, you know, and maybe a burner PC. What are they going to do? I haul you in and say, hey, you're looking at too many of the uh, videos of the kids dancing in uh, into fancy cars. I mean, it just seems so well, innocuous, the data. Well, and that that's one of the challenges. So the TikTok stuff is feels pretty innocuous. Uh, some of that, again, it's difficult to separate the, again, the poorly articulated concerns by the Trump administration around uh, data privacy versus, uh, you know, stirring up the base over anti-Asian sentiment in the middle of an election year. It's difficult to separate that stuff out. It might be a little bit of both. Uh, there's legitimate concerns about the data you have in the control of any Chinese company. Those are legitimate concerns. Uh, whether the TikTok data itself is problematic is a worthwhile but very different conversation. And again, because the Chinese government has the rules it has, and it's cracking down even more than ever, is uh, Xi Jinping is, is really trying to control all the tech giants there. The things he's doing with Alibaba are pretty fascinating to watch. For instance, the biggest company uh, in China. Uh, he doesn't want competition. He doesn't want tech giants getting bigger than the Chinese government. Uh, and he's cutting them down to size pretty aggressively, or uh, his administration is. So worthwhile to be concerned and cautious. And that's one of the, that's definitely a yellow flashing light for Clubhouse too, though it's a little more difficult with, with the way Clubhouse is operating. But um, well, let's talk about Clubhouse for a second. So these guys are valued at $1.4 billion. Why are they such a big deal? Um, well, for one thing, for a while, it really was Silicon Valley's clubhouse. Um, it just turned one last week. It's, you want to talk about something coming out of nowhere, it's clubhouse. And uh, weirdly, um, for some reason, we, we weren't really paying attention to audio for a long time. We had... I mean, podcasts have been around for 15 or 20 years. Audio books have been around for 15 or 20 years. Um, you know, it's not like audio content wasn't there. I mean, Apple Music and Spotify are gigantic businesses. Um, but live, streamed, interactive, audio-only conversations that sit on your phone, somehow no one said, hey, we should do that. <laughs> And because it's not like it's a complicated or B, you know, it's not a big, it doesn't eat up a lot of the pipe. You could have done this on phones five, 10 years ago with that not being that demanding. There's some things you need to get through, but I mean, it's pretty comparatively fairly simple, but no one said, Hey, we should do voice and we should make it so you could, you know, just broadcasting, you're not just talking at people, but they can talk back, but you can control how you do that. So it becomes a very different experience, like a Facebook, Facebook group uh, with audio, except that now we see that Facebook is layering in. I mean, the latest reports are that, yes, indeed, they're working on uh, their version of that. And Instagram has a version of that. Uh, and Twitter now has launched spaces. It's been out for a month or two. Uh, and there's seven or eight competitors like Swell and Chalk that are getting money for all the people that didn't get a chance to invest in um, uh, Clubhouse. You know, they're like, oh, I'll do a copycat and see if we can get an exit somewhere and go from there. So um, I, mean, it's a, I think it's a pretty compelling experience. I'll actually, uh, a group, uh, a Zoom group that I've been part of, kind of a closed group that, of people who are 
CMOs and and, and uh, run run agencies. A lot of them are ex Nike people and really smart folks. And for some reason, they have me there to be one of the the people who um, decrypts technology. And it's a small group, purposely small. But we're going to move from Zoom and a closed room there to TikTok. I mean, I took to, to Clubhouse uh, on Friday, Friday morning. We're going to be there Friday morning Pacific time and start being more public. We'll spend most of our weekly gatherings there and let other people get engaged. And we talk about some of the news that's going on, this intersection of entertainment and technology and marketing and media and and make that more public and let people come in and ask questions or just listen and see what that becomes. What's the name of the club? uh, Couch with a K collective. And it is a club not just a room, it's a club, so it's an ongoing thing. Um, and I'm on there as David in LA, I in LA. Um, so it's, uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I've, I've moderated a few, a few things there and been pulled up on the stage, sort of the virtual proscenium a few times. And, and it is, uh, certainly can get baggy and lose focus, but if you keep it tight and you've got a good couple of moderators engaged in it and keep it moving along, it'd be really, really good. And I've heard some amazing folks. Mark Zuckerberg was in there last, last week, as were more interestingly to me, the, uh, the people who had his AR VR research unit talking about the future of interfaces. And, and uh, Jamie Foxx has been on there holding court for two hours and dead mouse, the EDM, music uh, guy and, and, and Blau, another one of those guys have been on there. They're camped out there. And so people like that are there. I mean, it's really surprising who shows up. Uh, some of well, the names. Speaking are- of uh, uh, Zuckerberg, uh, you wrote on uh, TubeFilter that Facebook is poised to file a giant antitrust lawsuit against Apple over its app store practices. Uh, but the heavyweight fight is also about the future of computing, as you wrote. So walk us through what's happening there. Well, I'm an Apple geek and I freely admit it, but I also certainly understand the complaint, not just by Facebook. Epic has already got this lawsuit in place, a similar lawsuit to what Facebook might do. Uh, Facebook is concerned because Apple is imposing uh, new restrictions on, again, the data that companies like Facebook can take in that it is required. It, it, it's not even restricting how much data Facebook could take. It's telling people, do you want Facebook to take this data? It's asking them actively, uh, hey, these guys do X, Y, and Z. Do you want them to do that? And Facebook is concerned that it will impact the $15 billion a quarter that they make off of advertising. They're highly targeted advertising based on all the data that they take from us. Um, and so they're not happy about that. And they, they also have a personal thing going on between Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg. Um, that's sort of interesting to watch. Um, but, but it's also about a, it's, it's about a, a sensibility about what the internet should be. How do you pay for it? With Apple, you pay for it on... Uh, expensive, long-lived technology that has software and services layered on top of it that often are free or inexpensive, but you're paying for subscriptions. They're making a big push into subscriptions. Facebook is, hey, we're for everybody, uh, and you don't have to pay except with your attention and all your data. And 
so and your are, dreams, hopes, fears, and desires. And all that stuff <laughs> built through there. Yes. I mean, like any of us has any dreams, hopes, fears, and desires left after a year of pandemic, but just theoretically, maybe we still do. Uh, but, but it's really two different sensibilities and about what we're going to be. So, so he wants the app store not to be the only way that Facebook can connect to people who use uh, an iPhone to get on Facebook. But that's the only way to get there for Apple. And Apple says we're doing that to control fraud. We're doing it to control uh, objectionable material, et cetera, et cetera, to have the best possible experience. And they also get some benefits out of it themselves because they can say, hey, you could use Safari as opposed to Google's Chrome, which helps their, their ad business and so on and so forth. Um, it's really a fundamental dispute about how we pay for these things that the bounty that we get across the internet and, and the experience that we have. And it's really an argument has been going on since they, they made the, the web public in 93 or 94, somewhere in there. So it's a long going, it's a long running debate. And, and this is just the latest iteration and it'll be an even more interesting inter fight when we get to the next generation of, of interfaces. So I was listening to those Facebook people on ARVR, augmented reality, virtual reality speak. And the next interface isn't good mobile. Mobile's cool, but we kind of maxed out what we can do with the phone. I mean, everything's kind of incremental. It's cool. They're amazing. The Samsungs are great. The Google Pixels are great. Uh, the iPhones are fantastic, et cetera, et cetera. They all have extraordinary things. You could, you could fly seven, a whole fleet of space shuttles with these things, right? But there are limits to what you can do with them. And now the next generation is going to be some sort of glasses or external wearable thing and how we interact. And one of the things these guys, these ARVR guys, think, what's going to be a click? How do we click yes? You know, what's that going to be when we're, we've got some sort of visual thing that overlays on the world that gives us access to the virtual world in the real world? And it's like, yes, do you want to know who that person is? Well, how do you say uh, yes without sounding like you're talking to yourself out loud, you know, <laughs> how do you do that? You know, you're not going to open up your phone. There's got to be ways to do that. So figuring out the gestures that set those things off and do it in a way that makes you not look like you have to rest. That's a big issue. Uh, but more importantly, all of a sudden you have this thing that is uh, going to have access to your biometric data. I mean, it's a whole nother layer of data that somebody like Facebook has, you know, they've already started out, you know, they're, they're immensely popular new Oculus two, Quest 2 headsets are fantastic. Two ninety nine, great thing. Hottest, one of the hottest things at uh, the holidays. But to use the Oculus Quest, you have to have a Facebook account. So, do I want to give again Mark Zuckerberg a whole new class of data to do with as he will? Maybe I do. Maybe I don't care. But maybe I don't want him to have that. Maybe I spring for a much more expensive service or system from Steam or uh, HTC. Um, or Apple. It is, it is no doubt a fascinating discussion. We should have you back to discuss more at length and get into VR and AR. Um, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to support us, uh, you can do it by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like a free copy of my new book, The Digital Pivot, Secrets of Online Marketing, with a forward by New York Times bestselling author David Pogue. Here's how not you can David do it. Bloom. Just to be clear, not David Bloom. But not David, not David Bloom. It is David Pogue who wrote the forward to my book. 
And you can get a free copy of the Digital Pivot Secrets of Online Marketing by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And here's how you do it, okay? Go to earnedmediapodcast.com. Give this show a star rating and write a comment about what you think about the show. Next, take a screenshot of your review and share it on Twitter. Now, when you share it, be sure to include my Twitter ID, which is at Eric Schwartzman, and the hashtag Digital Pivot Book as one word in the body of your tweet. And then lastly, make sure you follow me on Twitter. And in exchange for your feedback, I'll DM you a link where you can download a free copy of my new book, The Digital Pivot, Secrets of Online Marketing. And this book explains in simple language how to successfully move your business or career online. David Bloom, senior writer at Forbes. Uh, if someone wants to pitch you a story or hire you as a consultant, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, I'm pretty available, but um, based on the uh, the ragged state of my my email box, I don't think people have a hard time finding me. But it's uh, David um, David Bloom in L A I N L A at uh, Gmail or David L Bloom on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter at David Bloom. And like I said, David, David in LA, I in LA uh, is my handle on both Instagram and on um, uh, Clubhouse. So follow me anywhere, reach out to me. I'll try to catch up. I mean, I get hit on a lot. And when I was 25, that would have been my dream to be hit on a lot by folks, but it's not quite the same in this universe or this time. So anyway. Well, we are just a stone's throw away, but if we don't get to meet locally, perhaps it will be at a roadside stand having pasta in the old country. In Tuscany. Sounds good. For more on how you can earn influence through Earn Media, get the Digital Pivot audiobook at digitalpivotbook.com.